the Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast. This is the Meet the Barrister series with me, Alana Hughes. In the Meet the Barrister series, I speak to a different guest barrister in each episode and discuss their path to the bar and their practice. The aim of this series is to demonstrate that the bar is not a one-size-fits-all sort of profession, as it is sometimes wrongly assumed to be. Barristers come from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialise in many different areas of law. There is something for everyone. In this episode, I am joined by Nancy Williams. Nancy was called to the bar in 2016 and is a barrister at Five Pump Court. She specialises in three main practice areas, civil litigation, crime and family. Before becoming a barrister, Nancy worked at Lee Day, a leading human rights firm, KPMG France, the International Chamber of Commerce and the United Nations Development Programme. Nancy completed her undergraduate and master's degrees at the University of Nottingham, where she also worked as a research assistant at the Human Rights Law Centre. Nancy is one of the Bar Council's social mobility advocates and is the vice chair of the school's outreach programme at Gray's Inn. Nancy, it's so lovely to have you join me tonight. How are you? I am very well, Alana. Thank you so much for having me. So just to start us off then, I was just wondering if you would be able to tell me a little bit about your background um, and where your interest in law came from and how you came to be interested in a career at the bar. Of course. So um, I was born in Sierra Leone in the capital city, Freetown, and I came to the UK when I was one um, one year old. In fact, I actually came on my um, first birthday and growing up, my immigration status wasn't very clear. And by that, I mean, it wasn't regularised. It was something that my parents kept from me and which I found out when I was a lot older. But my dad ended up going into immigration law and opening his own immigration advisory centre. And one of the reasons why he did this was because he was trying to find a way to regularise our immigration status in the UK. And because my dad had this um, immigration practice that he was running, and it was effectively a one-man show, it was a one-man band, my dad, who was not very computer literate, so it meant that um, I ended up helping him a lot with um, typing up letters and doing photocopying. I was effectively a free admin assistant. It meant from a very young age, around the age of eight to about 10 or 11, I was exposed to law. And because I was often at my dad's office helping him, I could hear the conversations that he was having. Um, And he was very good at giving me an idea of what was going on and what he was doing. And through that exposure, that's how I developed my interest in the law, because I realised, particularly with immigration law, um, how important and helpful it can be to giving people who are sometimes in some very desperate situations the opportunity to create a new life in um, a different country. And how have you found that that background in immigration law and that exposure that you had through the work that you did with your father, how have you found that that has impacted in your practice areas of choice now and particularly the sorts of cases that you enjoy? 
Well, I'm really interested in the human aspect of the cases that I'm doing at the moment. So one of the things that my dad used to do with his cases was often tell the stories of his clients. So give a very clear picture of um, their lives in their country of origin and the reason why there was this need for them to um, come to the UK and resettle here. And I found the um, stories the most compelling and engaging aspect of the cases. Perhaps that was because I was a little child and so the law sort of went over my head and it was the stories that I really connected with. But that interest in people's personal stories and journeys is one that's um, persisted. And that's the element of my cases that I enjoy the most understanding people's stories and being able to present them to the court in a way that is engaging and enables the court to understand why um, my clients are asking for um, a particular thing. So in terms of my practice areas, the areas that sort of fit that interest most appropriately, I would say, would be family law, which I do a lot of, particularly public children work. So that's care work, work involving the local authority, um, making applications in respect of children. And then the second element, which really came from my dad again, was an interest in advocacy. So when I was younger, it was my dad who really introduced me to this idea of barrister versus solicitor in what I understand now was a very sort of simplistic way. But at that age, I got into my mind this um, desire to just want to present cases and do advocacy. So that's an, er um, an element of my practice that I'm really interested in. And for that, I find that crime really satisfies that interest. Um, it's often in the magistrate's courts quite rough and ready. And I do really enjoy the challenge of having to think on my feet. I mentioned in the intro to this episode the experience that you had of work at Lay Day, KPMG, the International Chamber of Commerce before you came to the bar. You've talked about your love for advocacy and sort of a desire to want to be an advocate from a young age. So what was it that led you to go and sort of explore working for those sorts of companies and firms and that sort of work as opposed to coming straight to the bar? I went through my education in a very sort of routine way. So I did my GCSEs, I did my A-levels um, and I did a degree and then I did my master's degree. And I um, felt when I got to the end of that, that it had been a long, hard slog <laughs> and I wanted a break. So I, after I finished my master's, I spent a year abroad and that was when I worked for the UNDP in Sierra Leone. And then I came back and I did the bar course. So I did the bar course for one year. And I think that that sort of experience of being abroad before doing the bar course really sort of made me understand when I finished the bar course that I wasn't ready to become a barrister. I decided that I that being a barrister would require a lot of hard work and commitment. And as I just said earlier, I felt like I'd gone through a long slog, a long, hard slog, and I wanted to have a break. So when I finished the bar course, I decided that I wanted to go and live abroad. And so the experiences at 
KPMG and um, the International Chambers of Commerce were in Paris in France and I was there for two and a half years and I decided that I wanted to go abroad and to live in a different country. I chose France because I spoke French, I studied French at A-level and when I was choosing the work I wasn't particularly interested, I wasn't too bothered I would say about exactly what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to be broadly within the area of law but I wasn't necessarily thinking too much about whether or not that would feed into my practice or I would develop an interest in what I was going to do. I was going abroad mainly for the experiences. But the work that I did in the ICC and KPMG were actually very useful, particularly at the ICC, because I was dealing with the International Court of Arbitration and their particular procedure for um, their arbitration processes. And with um, KPMG, I ended up doing some helping as part of an investigation into financial crime of a French bank. So they ended up being actually worthwhile experiences. But I should say that when um, I decided to go for those jobs, I wasn't too focused on my career. The job at Lee Day was actually very different. I'd found at the end of um, my time in France that I was starting to get a bit itchy and I wanted, I felt like I was ready to come back to the UK and actually become um, a barrister. Um, I felt like my break, so to speak, was over. So I wanted to work as a paralegal because I knew that was one of the ways that is quite good to get some legal experience. And in fact, lots of aspiring barristers do decide to be paralegals. So I knew that that was one of the more usual routes to becoming a barrister. Um, And Lee Day just seemed like the perfect fit because the values of the firm were very much in line with the way I saw myself um, having a legal practice. And that means, you know, helping vulnerable people and trying to get um, access to justice to as many members of the public as possible. We'll come on a little bit to talk about the fact that you've been been so open in other interviews that you've done that are published online about sort of financial difficulties and challenges in terms of making that decision to come to the bar and the financial implications of, of that decision and what that involves. When you were employed, did it cross your mind or, or was it a concern that you were knowing that you wanted to become a barrister, but realising that that meant leaving behind sort of a salary or holiday pay and and all of the things that bring financial security to people, especially when you have just recently left university, you're probably loaded with debt and you're well aware of the hardship that you're sort of essentially signing up to when you join the bar, specialising in in public areas of of work. Yes, but I think I was lucky in the sense that there were and they are ways of getting financial assistance and I was able to make use of those. So I applied for a scholarship at the inn to do the bar course and I remember at the time of applying I told myself look if I don't get a scholarship then I I, I don't think I'll be able to be a barrister because I simply can't afford the cost of the bar course by myself and I was fortunate enough to get the scholarship. So it was a concern for me but I'm I'm glad to say that I found a way of um, overcoming um, that sort that obstacle, so it didn't hold me back from pursuing the career at the bar. And I suppose just for listeners who are maybe 
in a similar sort of situation where they have gone to explore other avenues, but they just keep coming back to this idea of wanting to be a barrister and feel like they're being held back within their own mind and the concerns that they have about that, what that might involve. It's good for listeners to know that the support is there with the in. It's there for people who need it, for people who, who deserve it. And that process of coming to the bar and the financial implications involved can be made much less scary by obtaining a scholarship, which which many, many people do. Exactly. I agree with that. And the in, I would say, when you're applying to become a barrister is really your primary source of information. I know particularly from my experience at Gray's Inn, the education department is very supportive and is willing to put aspiring members in contact with barristers that can act as mentors and to help guide you through the process. So not only do they offer financial assistance, they can also help you make the contacts and the connections that you need to get the emotional support that uh, someone needs when they're going on this journey to becoming a barrister, because it is very tough, it is competitive. And in terms of financial support, there are also other organisations that can offer financial assistance to um, aspiring barristers. I think some local councils offer scholarships to um, students who are pursuing careers. So if a scholarship at the inn doesn't necessarily work out for you because it is a competitive process with applying for scholarships. There are other avenues that can be explored. So financial concerns should not be one of the reasons why you turn your back on a career in the bar at the bar because there are, um, as I said, other avenues of assistance. I want to ask you now, Nancy, about your role as a social mobility advocate with the Bar Council and your role as vice chair of the school's outreach programme at Grey's Inn. What, what do those roles involve? Um, so first, in terms of the role with the Bar Council, it's really one of being um, visible. So I think there still persists at this time, which is um, quite discouraging, this idea that you have to look and sound a a certain way to be a barrister and by that I mean you know you need to be posh white and privileged and the social mobility advocates are really there to smash that stereotype or that that idea that that's the criteria for becoming a barrister and all of the social mobility advocates come from non-traditional backgrounds and so one of the things that we do is work with the bar council's partners to speak at events and essentially share our story with usually students or aspiring barristers about our journeys to the bar and to give advice and tips to students about how to apply to become a barrister and tips about things that we've just touched on here. So um, how to access financial support and also if you need to get a mentor, speak to someone or get in contact with a barrister or an inn, how to do that. So it's really just about opening the bar up to a wide audience and dispelling any myths about what it what you need to do or what you need to be to become a barrister. And I have to say the surprising thing is that lots of questions, lots of the time I get asked the same question. And that is, you know, do you need to have an Oxbridge degree? Do you need to know a barrister to become one. And so I think um, a scheme like this, 
social mobility advocacy scheme that the Bar Council is running is actually fantastic and really good for demonstrating that the Bar is open to everyone. And the schools outreach programme that is running at Grey's Inn is operating with a similar sort of ideology. And by that, I mean the programme is really interested in engaging young students from non-traditional backgrounds and exposing them to a career in the bar at the bar opening it up to them and making them aware that it is possible for them and that it's not something that's out of their reach so at the moment we are running a pilot program with a school in Newham which is actually the um the borough in which I grew up in um in London and speaking to the students there and teaching them about the skills that you require to become a barrister and the journey to becoming a barrister. So they're two different projects, but they both have a similar ethos. And so I'm really very excited to be involved in both of them. One aspect of your non-traditional background is that you attended a comprehensive secondary school rather than a private school. And also, as you as you've mentioned, that you attended Nottingham University, which is a red brick, but of course isn't Oxbridge. And, you know, this podcast is about showing people that you don't have to attend a private school and you certainly don't have to attend Oxbridge in order to be a barrister. But I wanted to ask you more about your comprehensive education and a quote from a interview that you have done in the past with the Bar Council says that you find university challenging in the sense that at school you had always stood out for being one of the more intelligent people in your year but at university everyone was more or less the same level of intellect and that was obviously a difficult situation to navigate and difficult transition and I'm also comprehensively educated myself and when I attended university I completely agree and this what what you've said here really resonates with me and I think thinking about it you know in advance of this podcast and and what I wanted to ask you about about it my own experience of it I think is because when I got to university that was my first experience of competition and that was Mm -hmm. my first experience of a really competitive sort of fight for places fight for work experience fight for shadowing and then obviously that just escalated more and more through BPTC and through the process of trying to find pupillage would you agree that when you do have a comprehensive background you're not necessarily as prepared for the competition as you might be if you were privately educated Yes, I think that's right. I entirely agree with your observation. I think that in a comprehensive education, if you are considered to be one of the best and brightest at your establishment, you are sort of set aside. I I can only speak from my experience. So I, I can say that my experience and that of my friends is that we were sort of set aside as being people that were going to have a bright future and we were encouraged and we were nurtured but we weren't exposed to competition because there wasn't really anybody to compete with us. We may have been competing amongst ourselves but it wasn't competition in the sense that you have described which is exactly right when you get to university and the playing field is opened up um, and you realise that the competition is a lot more fierce it is ruthless and it's it's not the same sort of friendly competition that you may have in the school um, environment. It can get very dirty and very messy. So I found that element of competition 
challenging. And I think when um, someone is from a privileged background, they sometimes I found that they know how to sort of place themselves in the best positions or to be able to access the best opportunities to excel at competition, which sometimes when you come from a comprehensive background, you may not necessarily know how to navigate the system in the same way. Another quote from that interview that you you did is that you struggled to find the thing that made you special whilst being acutely aware that you were different to everyone in terms of your race and your socioeconomic background. But you realised that your difference was important and that it should be highlighted. And I just wanted to ask you in relation to that, that quote, in terms of concerns that people have regarding imposter syndrome or difficulties in finding their identity, not so much finding their identity, but sort of feeling powerful in their identity, sort of show up to work as their full, true selves and believing in yeah. themselves and their ability um, with everything in their backstory and believing in what that can give them to be a better barrister. At what stage of your career do you think that sort of realisation dawned on you where by you could sort of stand up very firmly and say everything that has made me who I am to this point in my life is beneficial to me in the sense that I can use it to better myself in my career and it's not a hindrance in any way? I think it's a difficult question to answer because I think I still suffer from imposter syndrome so it's it's not something I have overcome but I would say that I have a sense of acceptance of my journey now. And I think I think it's happened. It's a development that's happened and fairly recently. I would say something that happened after pupillage. So I finished pupillage in 2019. So it's a fairly recent development. And I, I don't know if it's linked to sort of the process of coming out of the other side of the battle to become a barrister and succeed in and sort of feeling like, okay, now I'm here, I need to understand and realise that I deserve to be here. And in fact, it's my, the, the uniqueness of who I am that has got me this far. And in fact, it's my best asset. So I think it may be linked to sort of coming out the other side and managing to survive it and then realising that if I want to build a practice and have longevity as a barrister, that I need to accept myself, accept my journey. And I think in terms of being visible, which I think is a sort of an element of sharing your journey with others, particularly when you come from a non-traditional background, I realised um, how important it is for young people to see individuals in positions of power that look like them. I remember when I wanted to be a barrister, I didn't really see many barristers that looked like me. And it made me think that to be a barrister, I would have to look and sound a certain way. And I'm so glad that now you're seeing more barristers from diverse backgrounds. And indeed, the bar is promoting diversity at the moment. So it's really allowing people to speak up and share their stories. And hopefully they resonate with um, other people. So I'm actually quite glad that you said that that element of what 
I shared in the interview is something that you found interesting because I decided that it's important to share your vulnerabilities with others so that they can realise that it's okay to feel that way, but feeling that way shouldn't make you feel like you can't do what you want to do. In fact, you have to just accept yourself, accept your difference and share it with others because it can become your superpower. One element of the bar that has really surprised me throughout my pupillage experience so far, and, you know, I've wanted to be a barrister for a long time and have done all of the research that you can imagine needs doing since GCSE and coming to the bar was not something that I felt like I, I didn't know what I was getting myself in for or that I was in any way unfamiliar with, with the process. But one thing that has really struck me so far is just how different every barrister is and just how different every barrister runs their practice and how different their advocacy can be and their client handling and right down to the written advocacy and the paperwork that they produce and the decisions that certain barristers make about sort of strategic decisions to do with cases can be completely different to what might be decided if you had had another barrister instructed on the case and so it's from a pupil perspective I think it's a little bit scary because now that I'm sort of heading off into that position where I'm starting to try and build my own practice, there's kind of like an overwhelming sense of, well, there's a million and one ways that I could do this. Which one way do I decide to go? And having had a range of experience with a range of different barristers, I've I've been shown that there are many, many ways to do things. But I suppose just bringing it back to what we were talking about, how important do you feel that it is to sort of stay true to yourself and your motivations for coming to the bar in the first place in terms of your interest in the in the human interest and your focus on people and how important do you feel that 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 drive is to remain at the center of of what you do and how you sort of conduct your practice and how you're going about building it so there's two key themes that you've raised in that question. I think I'll deal with the first and then I'll turn to the second. So the first is when you are a pupil, you're exposed to lots of different practitioners because when you shadow your pupil supervisor, you follow them in court, you get to see how they interact with their opponents and how their opponents do things. And one of the things that I realised, and I think this was whilst I was in second six, is that you should pick and choose what you like from what you've seen because as she quite rightly said barristers all have different ways of doing things and if you think about it we all have the same knowledge base um, as barristers I mean our tool is the law we all know the law and we know how to apply it but what 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 makes us attractive what sells us and how our clerks sell us to solicitors and to clients is how we deal with the law and how we approach our cases. So I think it is really important to sort of try to cultivate your own way of approaching things and your own style of advocacy, because as your practice develops, that will help you stand out from everybody else. But it's a journey, and I think it's one that you learn through trial and error. And that's something that actually I'm I'm trying to do with my practice, sort of experimenting not experimenting in a way that's prejudicial to my clients' cases, but trying out different tips or different strategies or different things that I've seen other um, advocates do and see whether it works for me. So that's the first thing I wanted to deal with. The second thing is about how to develop my practice and the human interest angle. And I have to say that that is at the heart of my practice. I mean, I say this because I realise it sounds really cliche, 
but it is the truth. I decided to become a lawyer to help people because of my really personal experience with the law through my father and what the work that he was doing. I really just had an understanding of the law as being this tool that can help change people's lives. And so doing work experience, like, for example, working at the International Chamber of Commerce, confirmed what I knew all along, which was that I couldn't do corporate law or anything commercial because I couldn't engage with the material. I didn't, I didn't, and I I say this and I don't mean it to discredit anybody that does that kind of work. I wasn't really interested in whether there had been a breach of contract or somebody had lost X amount of money um, because of that. I found that I really engaged, like I said earlier, with stories. And so in terms of how I want my practice to develop, I want it to developed by continuing to do work that really has that human angle at its heart. So at the moment, having a mixed practice, a lot of the work that I do does have that um, element because I do lots of um, legal aid work and in particular lots of family work. And so I'm often helping individuals who are either trying to fight against state intervention in their family life through care proceedings or people who are in parties or that are in conflict and they need somebody to understand their position and resolve the dispute. So I think that moving my practice forward, I'll always have that interest in making sure that helping people is at the heart of it. And I can definitely say I'm not going to start becoming a commercial lawyer anytime soon. I don't think that will happen. Just in terms of looking back then and reflecting on everything that your career has entailed so far, are there any standout moments or notable highlights that really sort of you just look back on with with real fondness? So one of the cases that really sort of stuck with me was a criminal case that I did. I saw this case through from the beginning to the end and We um, had a trial in the Mags Court. My client was convicted of racially aggravated offences. And my client's case all along was, I firstly said he didn't do the offences of which he was convicted. And he said he's, he's not a racist. He was adamant that he wasn't a racist. So we ended up appealing the conviction. And we got the racially aggravated elements of the offences overturned, which is what my client was really really concerned about. He was more concerned about actually being found um, a racist than anything else. Um, He was willing to accept that there had been um, a confrontation, an argument between him and the complainant, but not that it was to the extent that was alleged by the complainant. And the reason why um, that case stood out for me is because my client's mother attended all of the court hearings. And when we had the hearing for the appeal against the conviction and we got the findings by the court, so finding the racially aggravated elements of the case overturned, she was so happy. And this was during the days of COVID. So right at the heart of the first pandemic, I think it was June 2020. So it was non-contact. And I remember her blowing me kisses. She blew me kisses outside the courtroom. And the reason why that case stood out was because of I felt like I'd really helped somebody, firstly. And second, I did feel like I'd got the right result. I did believe my client when he was saying, look, 
there was an argument, but I was not racist in any way. So I think that case stands out because, like I said, of um, the reaction of the mother, which was one of sheer joy, but also because it really sort of came back to what we've been talking about earlier and my interest in, you know, the human aspect and helping people. And I felt like I'd managed to do that on that occasion. And then to switch hats and look forward to the future, what are your career plans and, and aspirations? Where do you sort of see yourself in, in 10 or 20 years time? Is there a particular aspect of your practice now that you sort of think you might want to specialise in and, and do sort of solely? Or is the bench perhaps something that you might be interested in? So at the moment, I um, would like to do a bit more um, administrative and public law work so I don't do too much of that now and I think um, with my sort of interest in um, the human stories and really trying to ensure access to justice to all that area of law is um, one that I would like to explore and see whether or not I like it I know that at the moment, the juicy headlines tend to come from the, you know, the administrative and public law cases, but whether or not I enjoy it, something that I want to find out. I'm not at this point in time sort of minded to it, specialise in um, anything at the moment. I would like to continue with a mixed practice for at least another year, another maybe two or three years, because I do enjoy having that mix. I do enjoy doing public children work, so work where the local authority is initiating care proceedings against families. And so I would like to continue to do that and develop my practice in that field. Like I said, I don't think I I can't say at this time whether I'd like to specialise in it. At the moment, I'm doing some pro bono work um, with the UK and um, Sierra Leone pro bono network. And I'm working with them to develop sentencing guidelines for the anti-corruption court in Sierra Leone. And that's a project that I'm finding both interesting and challenging. And it's, it's the kind of work that I would like to do in the future, not just as a pro bono thing, but something that I would like to incorporate in my practice. Because as we've sort of touched on, I do have some international experience. And so... I would like to see some more international work in my future, but we we one can never know how things will go. So that's where I am now. I'm just trying to continue to develop my um, pro bono work to focus on continuing to build a mixed practice and explore areas that I'm interested in, and perhaps in five years' time to find something that I'm. I would like to specialise in and focus on that. Nancy, one final question and a question that I ask all of my guests that come on to speak with me on the podcast. Do you love your job? And if so, why? I do love my job. Um, And I love my job because I think I've said this before. I, I see the law as a tool to help people. And I think that with my job, I am able to to do that. So I like the fact that I'm often um, acting for people, sometimes very vulnerable people who really need assistance. And I do feel like through the law and through my job and 
that of my solicitors, of course, who instructs me that we're able to make a difference in people's lives. So that's the, that's why I love my job. And I guess the second aspect that I love of my job is the advocacy. I do really enjoy um standing up in well not standing up anymore because everything is remote at the moment so sitting down (laughs) but um presenting um cases and trying to persuade courts to grant applications or understand sometimes even if you realize that you're making an application or presenting an unattractive argument to the court really trying to engage the court in understanding why your client is asking for something and to engage with their stories. So I really enjoy um, the advocacy element and that challenge of presenting my clients and case in the most attractive way. Nancy, thank you so much. It's been really, really lovely to speak with you and um, all the best for everything that you have planned down later down the line in your practice. And I hope that our paths cross at the family bar sometime soon. Thank you, Alana. I'm sure they will. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at AGI Students.